So we're going to dive into our Hope Rising uh, series that we've been in for a few weeks out of the book of Revelation. We are, if, uh, if you're, this is your first time in church, um, it's not, the question in your head is, is it normal for pastors to preach straight through the book of Revelation? And the answer is no. And, and it's probably not even wise, um, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, I'm loving this book. The more and more we dive into it, it's a difficult book. It's a confusing book, but there is so much hope and so much encouragement and so much of what we need to live the lives that Christ has called us to live. And so what I want us to focus, you know, the whole intent of this series has been to to focus in on that hope and that encouragement and to pull this book out of the controversy and the arguments and everything about what it means. And instead, let's focus on the 90% that's there that we are confident what it's, what it means and, and allow God to reveal the rest to us in his own good time. Um, and so that's what we're going to do. Last time we, I, I spoke to you about revelation we were, we were in talking through these, this idea of these seven seals. And in that, uh, message, I talked, I referred to this book as kind of a, a symphony versus a chronology that I, I challenge you to kind of look at the book of revelation, not as an order of events. This will happen. This will happen. Then this, then this, then this, but rather, uh, kind of like when many, uh, musicians come together to form a symphony and they're all playing different parts, but when it all comes together, it turns into something really, really beautiful. And my favorite type of, um, um, kind of either whether, whether it's classical music or even movie themes, uh, whatever, my favorite type is things that work on variations of a theme. I love variations of a theme. When you, when you have, what I mean by that is, is a lot of, a lot of times music will start off with a very simple melody, something catchy, something really simple, maybe, you know, just something kind of, uh, light and melodic. And then, uh, that'll be kind of the first movement. And then the second movement, it kind of, they expand, they go back to that simple melody, but they expand and it grows and it builds and they go off in some crazy creative directions, but it's still kind of rooted in that melody. And, and then in the third movement, it'll expand even more, maybe come to a big, uh, climax where it was just, ah, it's just so intense. And maybe they'll drop it down in the fourth movement, bring it back, back down. But again, getting really crazy and bringing some different instruments, maybe change the tempo up a little bit, but it's still all rooted in that very beautiful melody, right? I love that kind of play with music. And I think that is really what's going on in the book of Revelation, where we start off, started off in chapter 1, where we get this really intense view of Jesus Christ glorified, just you know, presented to us in all of his glory. Just It's almost hard for us to comprehend the vision John gets of Jesus. And it's almost, you know, if you've ever been to a symphony concert, um, you, you, there's that moment when the um, first chair violinist will come out and he'll stand, you know, he, he comes to his seat. He kind of turns towards the, um, um, the orchestra. He'll play real quickly a concert A, and everybody in the orchestra then tunes to him, and it's just chaotic, and everybody's kind of tuning up and tuning up and tuning up. And they're all tuning to, to him, so they make sure that they're all tuned to him as, as one person. And I, that's the way I look at, at, at revelation. This is Jesus coming out to make sure everything else that happens in this, in this vision is tuned to the key of Jesus. 
It's all tuned to the key of Christ. So we want to make sure. And if you miss this, if you lose sight of the fact that this whole book is tuned to the key of Jesus, you miss the whole thing. It's not tuned to the key of the beast. It's not tuned to the key of an antichrist. It's not tuned to a key of, of uh, Armageddon. It's tuned to the key of Jesus. Jesus is at the center of everything that this book is about. And then as we move on to the next couple chapters, these letters get sent off to seven different churches that kind of represent all of us as churches. And, and Jesus shares with the church what it looks like to be a healthy church, what kind of things that they should uh, be proud of in terms of their behavior, what kind of things, th- things that they should try to avoid. Uh, he lets them know that persecution is coming, but they need to be faithful and withstand it and all this kind of stuff. So this kind of sets the tune, you know, our initial kind of first melody, melodic tune, and uh, lets us know that, that kind of base root uh, theme that we're going to kind of keep coming back to. And then last week we, we or, or then we get into the, the throne room, uh, this throne room vision where this, uh, uh, you know, Jesus comes on the, on the stage again, but also this scroll shows up, this scroll sealed up with seven seals. And in, on this scroll, this scroll is basically representative of God's plan to set the world right again. That God has a plan to deal with all the evil that's in this world, and, and in this scroll is the contents of that plan, but it's sealed up by this, these seven seals that only Jesus himself can open. And, uh, and so then the last time we uh, talked through Revelation, we started going through those seals, and we got through the first six, seven. We're hitting the seventh one today. And, uh, and so as we looked into the seals, we, we saw that uh, Jesus points out that the world has always been evil. It's currently evil. It will, it will always be evil until he finally sets everything right again. And we've, we, you know, we've got evil dictators and warlords and wars and death and the powerful abusing the weak and everything else. That is just, those things have just always existed through time. Then, uh, as we get to the, the, the fifth seal, we see uh, the, the, the saints that are there in the throne room, and they're crying out to God for justice. And they're told to be patient, that justice is coming. And then justice is actually meted out, and, um, and it, you know, it, it, it's justice. It's, it gets ugly, right? And then, so there's this whole thing, and the Lamb is glorified, and kind of all things are set right again. And then, now we get to the opening of the seventh seal. All right. Now what happened, what has happened is we have these seven seals this week. We're going to deal with now seven trumpets in a few weeks. It'll be seven bowls of wrath. And and it kind of keeps circling back again, not a chronology of this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And then this is going to happen, but variations on a theme. We kind of keep, it's, it's, it's kind of looking at the same events, but from a different angle with maybe a little bit more detail or whatever else variations on that same thing. We kind of keep circling back to it. So we start off this week in revelation chapter eight. If you're following from one of the Bibles in the back, it's 1032 page 1032 revelation chapter eight. (coughs) Pardon me. Now I'm not going to lie. This is complex. It's so complex. I rethought the wisdom of preaching this whole series. <laughs> it is, it is really, really complex. I was glad I had a week off and Matt preached last week. So I had extra time to prepare as we get, we're going to go through chapters eight, nine, 10, and 11. And you're like, you can't preach four chapters in over the course of one sermon and you would be right. I can't. And so we're going to do some skipping around, uh, and kind of hit the main themes, but but it is it is detailed. The symbology is rich and complex. It's 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 really. And when, when we get to chapter eleven, which marks the the middle of this book, it that might be the most 
difficult passage to interpret in, in all of Scripture. It's a really, really diffi- difficult passage to interpret. So know this. You're not going to walk out of here with all of your questions answered. I hope you get many of them answered. But for some, I will just challenge you to take some time with God and stare into his mystery and wonder and, and ponder what some of these things might mean. Um, but we're not going to get everything answered. But we're going to get enough that I think it's going to point you in the right direction. Okay? So look at Revelation chapter 8. Uh, Start with verse 1. It starts this way. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. As we've been opening up these these seven seals, it's just build, 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 climactic, just crazy events, and all this kind of stuff happened that's pointing to God setting things right and judging the world and the whole thing. Build, 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 build. And when we get to that seventh seal, we think, oh... If, if the first six were that amazing, what's the seventh going to be like? And we open up the seventh seal, and what we get is silence. Half an hour of silence. Some of you, are, as parents, are like, I could really use half an hour of silence. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. But it, what's going on in this half an hour of silence is basically this reverence and awe. When you've witnessed something that you can't even begin to, that's so magnificent, so amazing, that you can't, even begin to get your head around it. You cannot put it into words. And it's just everybody standing back going, it's just silence. It's just silence. And then as that seventh seal is open, now we go into these angels that show up with these seven trumpets. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, Trumpets are used for a lot of things. They're used for music. They're used for, you know, different, different things. I think what's going on here, as you'll see as we, as we look at the, the, these trumpets today, what they're really about is um, a, a method of giving warning. And a lot of the way that uh, in older, older days, ancient days, uh, trumpets were used in warfare but with, uh, with uh, battles and that sort of thing. And so, uh, you know, if you spent any time in the military, you, you, you maybe woke up to the sound of reveille or, or uh, there's a, a trumpet theme for when it's time to mourn. There's a trumpet theme for when it's time to shut down for the day. Uh, if you were in battle, there would have been a trumpet theme for, uh, you know, to, to head out or there's, there's an enemy coming or whatever. It's these signs of warning. These, 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 and, and because there's, as you were going to see, there's a lot here that ne- people need to hear in terms of a warning that's being given. And it says this, and another angel came and stood at the al- uh, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Now. Uh, if you if you've ever been a part of a Catholic worship service, you know exactly what's going on here. That that censer is basically kind of a metallic object. Sometimes it's uh, uh, kind of globe shaped. Other times it's kind of box shaped. But but uh, you know made of some sort of metal, either a tin or sometimes in this case like a, a gold. It can be open and incense burning. Incense is put inside. It hangs from a chain, and the priest kind of walks around wafting that incense. The smoke of the incense just kind of goes throughout the building as he kind of swings that censer. And this is what's happening here. And 
we're told that that incense and the smoke of the censer and that, of the whole thing is representative of the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the saints. And we kind of uh, touched on this a couple weeks ago where in Revelation, these prayers of the saints are constantly going up to God as they cry out for justice. Justice, they're, you know, there's no justice in the world and they're being persecuted and they're being beaten and they're losing their lives and we, des- we demand justice and we're praying for fairness. We're praying for uh, your deliverance, God. And those prayers rise before God. It says, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. So God hears their prayers he takes the censer, he fills it with fire, he hurls it at the earth, and now we have the beginning of judgment. God has heard the prayers and he answers them. And then there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. A lot of times throughout the book of Revelation, when God shows up on the scene, uh, scene uh, the other thing that shows up with him will be this kind of uh, natural display of, of lightning and thunder and earthquakes and things like that, just to kind of show the the presence of God, the majesty of God, the power of God. Now, before we move on, it's because there's so many, uh, you know, crazy things in in, uh, Revelation that we're trying to uncrazy in this sermon series. It's really easy for us to focus on the bigger, more fantastical images that we get and gloss over some very basic ones that would be a huge mistake for us to gloss over. And the one for us this morning that would be really easy to gloss over, because if you came excited about a sermon on revelation you're not necessarily excited about a sermon on prayer but you need to hear it this morning because prayer is a major theme in this book and it's a major theme in our life and what i want you to hear this morning is the simple fact three little words god hears you he hears you you cry out to him for justice you cry out to him for deliverance from the circumstances of your life You cry out to him to show himself to you, to make himself known to you. God hears you. Your prayers are effective. Your prayers are no small thing. The very fact that God set this whole relationship with us up in such a way that we have direct access through prayer to the king of the universe, to the God who created everything, That's not a small thing. That may be something that you have come to take for granted, but it's not a small thing. Can can let's let's have a moment of honesty. We like to do honesty at Living Hope. We don't like to put on masks or airs for anybody. Uh, We're we're just a bunch of jacked up people, and uh, and so shake off your uh, your thought of telling a lie right now. You're in church. That could go bad for you, and and so just just. Just shake it off. I'm going to be honest in this moment with a show of hands. Show of hands right now. Nobody's going to judge you. Show of hands. How many people here would say you sometimes struggle in your prayer life? Yeah, most of us. Most of us. It, it, it can be a real struggle for us. You know, we got that feeling of, um, you know, uh, there's, a, there's an old song I, I used to listen to several years ago. That, that One of the verses said, sometimes I get that feeling my prayers bounce right off the ceiling. And, and it, it, we get that feeling like, are my prayers even reaching God? Am I praying the right words? I, you know, so-and-so prays beautiful prayers. 
I can't pray prayers that good. I seem to stumble over my words. I don't, I don't even know what words to pray. And should I be asking for things? Should I not? Um, you know, there, so you feel guilty. You see, feel guilty about not praying. You feel guilty about asking for too much. There's just all this kind of junk that clogs up our thinking about prayer. And, and I just want to encourage you this morning and just say, just stop it. Stop, stop, stop doing that. And just simply speak to God. You don't have to talk to him. I think God is annoyed when we speak to him in King James English, by the way. He doesn't need thys and thous and thuses. Just talk to him. Just talk to him. Talk to him as if you would talk to, you know, anybody else. Pray doubtful prayers. Pray angry prayers. Pray whatever is on your heart, whatever is, whatever you're feeling. It's not like you can hide it from God. If God is who he says he is, you can't hide it from him anyway. Just pray what's on your heart. When you feel a sense of gratitude, thank him. When, you, when you're in need, let him know of that need. But what happens a lot of times in our prayer life is we kind of, instead of praying, we just get frustrated. Our life's not going the way we wish it was going. And so it's just like, ah, and we, we shake our fist at God. We, we question if he's even there. Uh, you know, we, we allow the circumstances of our life to create all this doubt in our, in our life about his, even his existence, as if God's existence hinges on how our day goes or how our year goes or how our career goes or how our family life goes. God is God is God is God, no matter what's going on in your life. He is there and he hears you. Now, if you're a parent, um, if you've ever had, if, you, if you've parented kids beyond, say, the age of three, um, you've had this experience where your kids go through this phase of just like, ah, just whining about everything or cry, just cry, 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 cry. Uh, and, and, and you as a loving parent would love to help your child, but th- they don't give you anything. It's just, ah, just that, right? And if you're a decent parent, you have used these three little words. What are they? Use your words. Use your words. I would love to, please stop. Just use your words. I'll help you. Let me know how I can help you. I would be, use your words. And I think prayer in a lot of ways is God's, God giving us the ability. And he's, he's just saying, use your words. Talk to me. Just, just simply tell me what's on your mind. How can I help? I'm I'm a loving father. I love you so much. I would be thrilled to bless you. Use your your words. Let me know. And when you can get your kid to like stop that horrible noise and actually speak to you and use words, it's just such a beautiful... And how many times as a parent you're going, totally couldn't, there was no need, no need for crying. I would have been glad to help you with that. But now, no, go away. And so, you know, <laughs> so, that's because we're sinful, evil parents. But, but, <laughs> but God, I think so often just, he gives us this ability to pray. And he's just saying, use your words. Just let me know. Let me know. And sometimes, here's the truth too. God gives us the ability to use our words even when we don't have words. One of my kids <coughs> very recently had a, had a day where, uh, they needed they needed a mental health day. They needed to stay home from school and take a mental health. Anybody else give your kid mental health days once in a great while? It's like okay, you need a day off. You need to you need to realign. You're falling apart. Whatever. Need a mental health day. And so I I let this particular kid of mine stay home and and uh, and and take it take a day take a day. 
And it gave me the opportunity uh, that day to have a conversation with this particular child and just say, I, um, I don't think you're actually feeling bad, you know, physically. I think something else is going on. You want to know what I think? And this particular Myers kid said yes. And I shared. I said, I think this and this and this is happening in your life. And I think that's why you're feeling gross. And I, I said, I've had days like that too. And I used to work a job that I hated so much, I would throw up on the way to work every single day. Right? And, and so we, got, we, we talked. And I said, you think that might be, be what's going on? And they said, yeah, that's probably it. I think God does the same thing with us sometimes where he looks at us and he's like, I know you don't have words. Romans 8 tells us that when we don't have words and we don't know what to pray, that the Holy Spirit takes our groanings that are too deep for words and delivers them to the Father into a perfect message that we couldn't even put into words. Even when we can't hardly use our words, when we just submit to Jesus, he gives us the words. He expresses what we can't express, and he's awesome for that. God hears you. Don't give up on your prayers. Continuing on in in Revelation chapter 8, I'm not going to read all this. Let me just summarize. You can go back and read it on your own. Summarize what happens. The first four trumpets are blown, and they are trumpets of judgment. And they parallel very closely um, the plagues that took place in Egypt when God delivered the children of Israel from Pharaoh for out, out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, if you don't know the story in Egypt, God sent 10 plagues and there was, you know, the the Nile river turned to blood and there were frogs everywhere and flies and locusts and there was darkness and there was, you know, livestock dying, all these 10 plagues that happened, uh, you know, there in Egypt. And, um, and so when we read now these first four trumpets, they parallel these plagues so closely that, that you cannot miss the reference to the plagues of Egypt. You just can't miss it. And the thing about those plagues in, that happened in Egypt is that at the time, I mean, we tend to look at them as God punishing Egypt for being evil to, to his children. And it was a punishment for Egypt, but it was also, it was more than a punishment. It was also uh, deliverance for his children, deliverance for his children. And this is what happens. And when this judgment comes down and, and we're using all this kind of catastrophic, you know, plague-like language here. And um, yes, it means judgment for a lot, but it means deliverance for a lot of people too. God is setting all things right. Revelation is, is not about what happens when we go to heaven. Revelation is about um, the reestablishment of heaven here on earth, of God combining his kingdom and the kingdoms of this world back to the one kingdom that he originally meant for it to be. He makes all things new. But the problem is that so many people in our world have lived and continue to live as if there was no heaven and there is no God. And they have to be warned. They have to be warned that no, God is real. He has a kingdom. He's going to establish it here on earth. And if you don't side with Jesus, if you don't place your faith in Jesus Christ, it's not going to go well for you. It's not going to go well for you. Now, we get to Revelation chapter 9. The fifth trumpet is blown. The fifth trumpet's blown. And then and it, it's a crazy trumpet. Here we go. Um, 
Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. And they were, and they were, and they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, those people who were set aside, my children, my people. I'm not talking about a literal seal, don't go crazy, whatever. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. I think the reason the five months here is that typically when there's a a swarm of locusts that attack an area that you can expect about five months of activity before they either die out or move on. That's, that's typically the way that would go. And I think it's God's way of saying they're, it's going to run its course, but it's not going to last forever. It's going to, this evil is going to run its course, but it's not going to last forever. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, and their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, which means destroyer. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon, which also means the destroyer. All right? So, okay, this is crazy. Crazy vision of, like, monster locust attacking the earth and, you know, that sort of thing. So before we dive into this, let me just say this. Monster locusts are not going to attack the earth. Okay? I, I'd like for you to put that idea out of your head. We're not going to get some sort of, you know... 1950s B-movie sci-fi thing happened with monster locusts attacking the earth. That's not part of God's plan for us. I think when you look at what's going... Again, we, we use this very rich, symbolic, colorful language. And when you look at what's... Th- these things have a kind of mechanical description to them. You know, breastplates of iron and the noises that they make and just everything about them. I think what's being described here are weapons of war. Weapons of war. That John's been given some sort of vision of weapons of war. And he's saying that, the, that, that, that this whole thing is just war is going to envelop the world from time to time. Or maybe at one particular time. Who knows? I don't know if this is a prophecy of something that has already happened. Or something that's going to happen. Or, some, or a little bit of both. And my guess is it's probably a little bit of both. But it's this idea of, of just the warring, warring, warring nature of this world. Now, the point I want to bring out about this is, 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 is not, I'm not trying to make a cute point with this. I'm trying to be serious that the enemy doesn't need to employ monsters. The evening news is more effective. Our enemy does not need to employ monsters to just, you know, to, to wreak havoc on the world. The evening news, the things that happen that we watch on the news every day are just as effective, if not more effective. The problem with that is that so many of us as Christians fall into this trap of looking for monsters. You see a demon in every bush. You, everything's an evil spirit. Everything's, a, you know, whatever. You're, I mean, you're looking for beasts and signs and dragons and, you know, what, you're looking for monsters. And what I think is actually happening is you're falling into our enemy's track. A, a trap of being distracted by looking for monsters so you don't see what he's actually doing all around us every single day. Quit looking for monsters. We don't need to look for monsters. Quit looking for antichrist. We don't need to look for antichrist. Just look at the news. 
look at what's going on. If you can be distracted to looking for crazy monsters that are never going to come, then you'll miss what, he's, what, what the enemy is doing all around us that you probably vote for, that you probably embrace as part of your political platform. You miss what's actually happening. So let's be a people who will not get distracted by crazy tales and scary things that, like I said, will likely never come. And just look around you and you can see with your own naked eyes what evil is doing all around us every single day. Every single day. So as we dive into chapter 10, what happens is... um, this angel shows up. You should read it yourself. I'm not going to read this part, but it's a crazy angel. He's got rainbows all around him and stuff. And, and, uh, and so anyway, this angel, angel shows up and he hands John, or he has in his hand a little, what is called a little scroll. A little scroll. And the idea is this is a littler, I don't know, more hand, easier to handle version of the scroll with the seven seals that had God's plan for, for the whole world on it. And John is told to go get the little scroll. And so the angel gives him the little scroll and this is what happens, all right? Uh, start with verse 8 of chapter 10. <laughs> then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. So God's plan for the whole world, God's plan to set all things right, is handed to John. He's told, I want you to eat this. I want you to devour it. Make it a part of who you are. When you first do it, it's going to be sweet on your lips. But once it settles, it's going to be bitter in your stomach. Do you guys know that the gospel that we preach um, week in and week out, the gospel that you read and that you try to live every day, there's a bittersweet nature to it. It's for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, it's sweet. It's, it's our hope. It's our encouragement. It keeps us strong. It keeps us on the right track. It keeps us close to God. This, these words are, are life to us. These words are life. <coughs> Pardon me. But for those who would reject Christ, there's a bitter message here. There's a message of, if you don't follow me, judgment is coming. And for those of us who do follow Christ, we're given kind of the same task that John was given in this moment to say, well, this is what it says in the very next sentence. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. In other words, take this thing, this little scroll, this message from me, take it and make it part of you. Get to know it. Make it who you are. It's going to be sweet to you, but there's a bitter message there too. There's a bitter message there too. And we're told to take this message to the world. The message of the love of Jesus Christ. And part of that message is that if we don't turn to Jesus, we have judgment in store for us. Now, can I just be honest and and just admit to you, I wish that wasn't true. I really do. I wish, I wish that wasn't true, but it's not my universe. It's God's. And so all I can do is be faithful to him and and be obedient. And this is not me shaking my fist at an evil world going, you know, 
You're going to be judged. No, in fact, if that's you, if you enjoy that, shame on you. Shame on you that you would sit here in church and worship God and sing praises and smile at your brothers and sisters in Christ and tell the world to go to hell. Shame on you. It should be bitter to you. It should be troublesome to you to have to deliver a message. Does anybody here enjoy a day where you've got to give somebody horrible news? Anybody? No. That's a horrible day, is it not? Like horrible. Come in my office. I got some awful news for you. We're going to have some fun. Right? No. Nobody wants to do that. It should be the same thing. It should break our hearts. As we, as we give this message to the world, for the, first of all, some will embrace it because they are ripe for, uh, for hearing it, for hearing the truth. And other people will reject it. That's just the way the world works. And it should break our hearts when they reject it. It should break our hearts. This is what you need to know. The word of God on our lips changes the world. The word of God on our lips changes the world. Now, as Christians, a lot of times we can, we can talk a big game about the Bible. Oh, we're a church that's all about the Bible, and I'm all about the Bible, and I, you know, I love the Bible. And I, what, what. At the end of the day, this is just a book. It's just a book. In fact, it's a poorly constructed book. Who makes pages this thin, right? It's, it's at the end of the day, who tries to cram a whole library worth of books into something this size? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The print is too small. We can't read it. This is why I print on really giant-sized paper so I can read the Bible to you guys every Sunday morning. It's just a poorly constructed book. At the end of the day, it's just a book. What's special about this book is not the fact that we have a book. What's special about this book is that it tells us about Jesus Christ. And it points us to how to live for him. This book by itself will help no one. But when you combine this, what was it, uh, John chapter 1. I love first lines to, uh, to great works of literature. Uh, for instance, Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the, right, uh, Moby Dick. Um, call, just call me Ishmael. Right, right. Uh, the, the, the gospel of John. In the beginning was the, and the word was, yeah, such a great opening line. Jesus Christ is called the Word because when we embrace the Word of God, it's not just us agreeing with words on pages in books. It's us taking it, eating it, devouring it, making it part of us, and allowing Jesus Christ to also become one with us in his Holy Spirit. And we take Jesus to the world. At the end of the day, we're not trying to get people to sign on a dotted line, do you or do you not agree with this book? That's not what this is all about. At the end of the day, we're trying to introduce people to Jesus. And that happens when we take the words, the very important words that are in this book, and allow Jesus to work through us and through those words. And we be Jesus to the world. We become Jesus to the world. That's the word of God in action. When I was um, a younger man, uh, early 20s, mid 20s, I, I used to stay up like really late, 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. And you know those infomercials they play on TV at 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning? And how if you ever sit and watch one of those 30-minute infomercials, uh, at, there's a certain, I don't know what the exact time is, but there's a certain time at night where everything is something that you desperately need in your life. 
And, and so I remember one night just sitting there, I'm, la- or I'm actually laying on the couch, kind of one leg hanging off the couch, uh, you know, laying on my side, got Cheetos right here. I'm eating Cheetos, watching infomercials. And the, the one by Billy, what's his face did the, did the Tybo came on and I'm looking at that cheat, you know, I'm Cheeto and I'm looking at the Tybo and it's punching and it's kicking. I'm like, I love to punch and kick. And I, I think I could be a better person if I get Tybo. And I was so convinced of it. Like the very next day it was coming up on Christmas time. I called my mother-in-law. I was like, I want the Tybo tape. It was tapes back then. I want the Tybo tapes for Christmas. And she, she didn't even know what it was. I had to explain it to her. So she gets me the Tybo tapes for Christmas. I'm so excited. I'm going to get, I'm going to be ripped. The guy looks like Batman. I mean, he's huge. And, and, and I'm just going to be ripped. And I'm going to punch and kick my way to better health. And it's going to be awesome. So I get home from Christmas and I put the first tape in. I'm at home alone, like during a lunch break or something. And it starts playing. It's like, okay, do this and do this. And I'm doing it. I'm going along with the videotape. And I look at myself and I'm like, I look so stupid. Like, like I felt so dumb. I was like, I can't do this. I feel so dumb. I don't care that nobody's looking at me. I look ridiculous and I don't even like this. I'm not having fun at all. And this is horrible. And that was the one and only time I played those Tybo tapes, right? That was it. I was like, I'm never doing this again. And, and now, now it wasn't enough for me to have those tapes in my possession. I didn't get any benefit out of just having them. And the same is true with God's word. You owning a copy of this means nothing. You living this is everything. It's everything. And the word of God on our lips, both in the form of this and in the form of Jesus, that's just being Jesus to the world around us, will change the world. The word of God on our lips will change the world. Now, Let's move on. Revelation chapter 11. Uh, we're going to read most of this. And this is crazy train. And it is um, it probably, like I said, probably the most difficult book of the Bible to, to interpret. Uh, lots of different opinions. I'm going to try to do my best with it. And let's see how it goes. All right. Revelation chapter 11. Then I was given <coughs> a measuring rod, <coughs> like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it's given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. All right, so he's, he's given this, this, this staff uh, measuring rod and said, measure the temple of God. Now, post-Jesus Christ, post-crucifixion and resurrection, living in the church age, what is the temple of God now? Us. Us, we are the temple of God. We are where God resides. This building is not a temple. There's no other building on earth that is the temple of, of the Most High God. We are His temple. We are where we experience His presence. It's, it's here with us individually and in the form of the church uh, collected as well. And He is told to measure the temple of God. In other words, mark out boundaries around my people. Set them aside. I will protect them. I will protect them. But He says, don't measure the court though. Because what's going to happen is uh, uh, that's going to be given over to the nations. They're going to trample the holy city. So in the, in the temple in Jerusalem, there was an outer court uh, for the Gentiles. They couldn't go into the inner areas of the temple where the Jews could, only could go. But there was an outer court for them to come to if they wanted to worship or whatever. And God is saying, don't measure out, don't set aside that outer court because that's going to be overrun. In other words, what God is saying is this. 
mark out where my people are, mark out where my presence are. If my people are with me, if I am with them living in their lives and living in their hearts, they will be protected from all of this judgment, but evil will draw near. Evil is going to get close. It's going to encroach upon them, but I will protect them. I'll save them from this judgment that's coming. He says uh, they'll trample the holy city for 42 months. Uh, so there's this constant, and then, well, let me read the rest. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Okay, some crazy stuff going on here. A lot of times, there, there's, you know, when we're talking about 42 months, we're talking about three and a half years. It's, it's uh, you know, four, yeah, 42 months, three and a half years. Uh, same thing with the uh, uh, 1,260 days. Later on, there's, there's referred to three and a half days as well. Uh, there are some people who believe that the, the whole three and a half thing is referring to, um, well, first of all, everybody's in agreement that three and a half is half of seven. And seven is a number that constantly comes, over, comes up over and over again in Revelation. And it's always meant as the number of completion. Anytime it's used, it's just given the idea of something complete, something whole, something, you know, whatever. And so three and a half being half of that. Now, there are some who believe that there will be a literal three and a half years of, of time where, you know, the church will be persecuted, whatever. Um, I tend to back off of that uh, and, and, and look at it this way. I think by going half of seven, this is just God saying um, there'll be a time where there will be persecution, but it will not be complete. It will not last forever. It has an end. It has an end. Now, if you disagree with that interpretation, that's totally fine. We can still be friends. Um, but, but I, I just, I don't, I, I try not to, and I, and I would advise you not to don't get so caught up in the numbers again, the very symbolic book. And if you, if you're looking for exact numbers and exact times and that sort of thing, I think it's really good. It's, it's a very, uh, misleading and, and a, a weird direction for you to go. Don't get caught up in the numbers and look at what maybe they might mean instead. So he refers to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to grant authority to my two witnesses. They'll prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So <laughs> these witnesses, again, I don't think we're looking for any two specific people that's going to come and do something uh, miraculous. I think the two witnesses that are going to testify to the goodness of God, they're just simply representative of the church, just the church. In fact, he refers to them later as the lampstands. That was the churches back in the early parts of Revelation that we looked at. And so it's just the church standing tall in their witness for for Jesus Christ. Why are there two witnesses? Because, again, we've talked about before that there's this law court language that goes all through the book of Revelation. And in law courts back then, uh, if anything wanted to be, needed to be established as true, it had to be established in the presence of two witnesses. And I think he's just saying this is true, and they're going to stand for the truth. My church, my children, my people will stand uh, and be a strong witness for my name. All right. Now, the other thing that happens uh, with the idea of witness that we've talked about before in previous weeks is that witness is, in Revelation is not just simply to state something as true or possibly true. The idea of witness means that you, you, you testify or you witness to the glory of God, to the goodness of God by the way that you suffer for him, by the way that you suffer for him. And this is where we get into this. Um, uh, beginning of that paragraph. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would hard harm them, fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have, talking about the two witnesses, they have the power to shut the sky. 
that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. We're not going to talk a lot about the beast. It comes up in, in bigger ways in, in, in a couple of weeks. Uh, but for now, just know that you know, it's talking about the enemy and, uh, and that basically the enemy will rise up against the church and, and, um, and make attempts to conquer them. And then it says this. So uh, the beast rises from the bottomless pit, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies, talking about the witnesses, talking about the church, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Now, we all know Jesus was not crucified in Sodom or Egypt. He was crucified in Jerusalem. So this, this idea of this city called Sodom and Egypt, again, it even says it's symbolic. Uh, it's symbolic of just the forces, the kind of the evil that takes place in this world versus the holy city of God that will come down and establish his kingdom on earth. So the forces of evil. So it says um, whether the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, there's that three and a half again. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse, this, is, this gets kind of sick, and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. And so basically it's this idea that the enemy rises up against the church looks like he defeats the church and kills them. And the whole world rejoices because they're done with the church because the church made everybody feel bad and they didn't like what the church was doing. And the church just, in fact, they, they make a holiday out of it and exchange gifts and things like that. But again, after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, talking again about the witnesses, and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Now listen to this part. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God, to the God of heaven. Now, very confusing, but let me try to, let me try to sum up what I think is going on here. The church stands tall for Jesus. They present, they are, they are a witness and a testimony to him and for that. He is Lord of all, uh, is through the power of their prophecy that they warn the world that God is going to, to judge them if they don't uh, put their faith in Jesus Christ. The world rejects that message. The world rejects that message. In fact, Something that happened earlier that I forgot to mention is that when all the wars and the, the locusts and the whole thing, when that was happening, after all that warring happened, the Bible tells us they still, the world still didn't repent. As ugly as the world got, the world still didn't repent. War and plagues and everything was not enough to make them repent. And here are these witnesses. The church stands tall and says, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord and get, get with him or this is going to go bad for you. The enemy rises up and seemingly destroys the church and the world rejoices. And then what happens is this, which is so beautiful. The church rises again. The church, the beautiful bride of Christ, rises again. And in that moment, they are called to be with Christ. And when the world sees what they have done, when they get a clear picture of the way that they have 
persecuted this church and yet she still lives and she still is glorifying to Jesus. Something miraculous happens. Something miraculous happens. It says, at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. I think this is a reference uh, possibly to um, uh, this, when, when Sodom and Gomorrah fell under judgment. Uh, back in the book of Genesis when God destroys the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what he told Lot, was, was kind of his man there in the city, what he told Lot was this, if you can find ten people in this city, I won't destroy it. If you can find ten righteous men in this city, I won't destroy it. Ten righteous men couldn't be found, and, and, and the whole city was destroyed. Now in this, it's kind of the opposite. Ten percent um, um, fall, and the rest are saved. The rest are spared. Then the next sentence, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. I think this is a reference to Elijah. Elijah, as he sets out, it's a great story when he goes up against the prophets of Baal. He goes up against the prophets of Baal and has this awesome uh, victory over them because of the power of God. Great story. Go read it. But in, after it's all over, I, uh, Elijah gets depressed and he's all, woe is me. And, and he's like, I'm the only one living for you and all this kind of stuff. And God says this. He says, there's 7,000 people that still haven't been a knee to Baal. 7,000 people that are still faithful to me. You're not alone. So we're, we're in Elijah's case, there were 7,000 that were faithful to God and everybody else was, had turned away from him. Now we see where 7,000 fall because of the judgment of God and everybody else is spared. In fact, it says this, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. They were ter- in other words, they, the, the fear of God came in them. They finally understood who God was, and they began to give him glory. Now, this is a, let, me, let me break this down, because what I think is happening here is this. Put that, well, put that slide up. It's this. Our pain is the world's gain. Our pain is the world's gain. So many times in life, we go through things that are hard, that are difficult, uh, you know, adversity, uh, you know, whatever, suffering that we go through because of sickness and death or loss of income or, you know, whatever, things that hit us. And we are just, why God, why God, why? And if you're like me, I'm always trying to find motivation to how, how do I, how do I keep giving God glory? How do I keep moving forward and praising him in the midst of the junk that I'm going through? Like, what's my motivation for doing that? And this passage, I think, gives us the greatest motivation of all. And I think this, this is actually like the central theme, the very center of the whole book of Revelation is this, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. This world is evil. He's got a plan to set all things right. And part of that plan of how the nations will turn back to him, how multitudes, again, don't get caught up in the numbers. Don't get caught up in making the numbers literal, but many, many people, I don't know how many people, but many people will turn back to him because of the witness of the church who would say, in the midst of suffering, I won't turn my back on God. In fact, I'll give him glory in the middle of it. Our pain is the world's gain. I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly motivating. Like if there's any reason for me to go through the junk in life that I have to go through and to make it palatable for me to go through, then it's that. If, if, if the junk I have to go through somehow means other people coming to faith in Christ, then okay, I'll go through that. I'll go through that. My, if my pain means the gain of the world, then yeah. I'll go through that. 
I'll go through that. Now, what we tend to do, especially reading through books like Revelation, is we tend to build these big straw man arguments. I wonder if in the moment of persecution, I wonder if I'll be able to stand tall for my faith. I wonder if terrorists swept through this room right now and held guns on all of us and said, you know, to, uh, you know, if you stand for Jesus or if you don't stand for Jesus, if you deny Christ, you can leave. I wonder if I would have the faith to do that. And we build these arguments. I think it's ridiculous to even, even argue that kind of stuff. This is the question you need to be asking yourself. Right now, day in, day out, in the little bits of suffering that we go through just because we're humans going through life, in the little bits of persecution that we go through because our family doesn't understand that we want to be people of faith or whatever, day in, day out, are you faithful to God in these small things? Are you faithful to God in the small ways that we go through suffering and persecution? If you want to know if you'll pass a bigger test, ask yourself, are you passing the daily test right now? And if you tend to be that person that just every time something bad happens, you're like, it's not fair. I don't even know if there is a God, what, you know, whatever. That should be a pretty good indicator of where your faith is. But we're called to be this church who will take up the idea of faithfulness in the face of horrible days, tragic events, whether they are caused by just natural lives that we live or if they're caused by some sort of great persecution. We're just simply called to be faithful. And why? Because the world will look at our faithfulness and how we suffered and when we suffered well. And somehow through that suffering, they'll be drawn to Jesus Christ. So much so that the very next passage in in, uh, Verse 15 says this, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's a beautiful idea that all things are set right again, and many, many people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons that they come to faith in Jesus Christ is because they look at our example. They go, When hard times hit these people, when we treated them bad, They didn't turn away. They just kept glorifying God. Now, I'm not the guy who prays for suffering. I'm not interested in suffering. None of us are, right? But this is what I know. It's not a matter of if we suffer. It's a matter of when. We're all going to suffer in some way in this this life, whether we live in this country or another country, whether we, you know, whatever the case may be, where suffering will come our way. So while I'm not going to challenge you to pray for suffering, I'm going to challenge you to pray this with me. God, when the time for me to suffer comes, help me to suffer well. Help me to suffer to your glory. If the world is watching the way that we suffer, and many people will be drawn to Jesus by the way that we suffer, then Jesus, help me suffer to your glory. Help me to suffer to your glory. I want us to close out with the prayer that we've been praying that Jesus taught us to pray from Matthew chapter 6. This prayer has revelation all over it. Pray it with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for being 
the word and help us to not just embrace letters and words on a page, but to embrace you, to live you, to live your word and, and, and you as the word in such a way that the world looks at us and somehow gets a glimpse of you. And God, while I doubt any of us are bold enough in this room to ask for suffering, we know that you promised in your word that we will suffer and we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. So God, when suffering comes our way, whether it's from kind of the persecution that we read about in scripture or just from natural hard times that happen to us as human beings, death and sickness and loss and other things, when suffering comes our way, God, help us to be faithful and to give you glory and to suffer well. God, my my prayer is that the world would be able to look at Living Hope Church, all the people who go to this church and call this church their home. They would be able to look at the way that we do life, not just in the good times, but also when times are rough. And that somehow they would be drawn to you because of that witness. So help us to be a faithful witness. Help us to be faithful. Thank you so much that you're in the process of setting all things right and making all things new. Thank you that you use us in that process. Thank you so much that you hear our prayers and you never give up on us. You are not unsympathetic to our needs and to our cries, but you're a good God. So help us to maintain our faith in you and forgive us when our faith falters. Forgive us when our faith is weak. Forgive us when we allow the circumstances of our life to get us off track and to help us and cause us to lose sight of who you are. Thank you for being God when things are great and for being God when things are rough. Thank you for being God when the world is looking better and for being God when we have no idea where the world is going. The circumstances of this life do not change who you are. So help us to hold on to that. We love you. We love you. Help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.